Our God, we sung such precious words, and you are glorious, and our hearts rejoice in that truth, and thinking of that reality is a refreshment to us. It is a joy to us. We delight in speaking of your glory. We delight in exalting you and lowering ourselves. We find comfort in the realization of the conviction of our sin and our lowliness, because all the more then is your grace magnified to our hearts and the forgiveness of sin more amazing and our relationship with you more praiseworthy as we think of your sovereign grace that invaded our lives and called us into union with yourself through the Son. So many miss that, our God, and we're continually confronted with that on the pages of Scripture, and we will no less see that this morning as we open your word. We pray that you would magnify your name in our hearts and that you would do a work of grace in all of us this morning as we think about this momentous occasion in your life of nearing Jerusalem, the place that would be the place of your death and your resurrection. Be with us, Spirit of God. Open our eyes and our hearts and our ears. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, open your Bibles to Matthew 21. Matthew chapter 21, verses 1 through 11. This will be part one of what will hopefully be covered in two weeks. And as we come here to this Matthew 21, this portion of Scripture, we come to one of the clearest presentations of Jesus as the Messiah the prophets anticipated in all of Scripture. It is also one of the most tragic portraits of misguided praise on all of the, on all of the pages of Scripture. Now, as we noted very briefly last week, God was very clear about the kind of Messiah that the people should have been anticipating and that they should have wanted. The whole history of Israel, the prophets, the law, the priest, the tabernacle, the sacrifices, everything was designed to prepare the people for the coming of the Messiah, to point the way and to point at the one who would come to redeem his people from their sin. Now, I want to emphasize one point that was made last week, namely that Jesus was the fulfillment of all that the prophets looked forward to. And so, to prepare our minds for what Matthew is going to unfold before us again here in Matthew 21, as he has done repeatedly throughout his gospel, namely that Jesus is the prophetic fulfillment of everything that was anticipated in the Old Testament. So I want to prepare us this morning by just considering briefly a few aspects about God's prophetic word. And by prophecy, I'm meaning specifically God's predictive prophecy. This aspect of prophecy, of God's foretelling the future, is an essential component of God's witness to both Himself and to His word. It has been calculated that for the entire, the entire Bible's 31,124 verses, 8,352 contain predictive material, or 27% of the whole. 
Now, there are at least two primary reasons that God emphasizes this reality of His ability to foretell the future events before they actually come to take place. Let me note those for you. One is it glorifies God. It glorifies God. When God declares an event before it happens, it declares that God alone is God, that He is the unique God, He is the only God who created all things, that it's His universe, and it declares that He is the one who is sovereign over His universe, that He brought it into existence, and that He's carrying it along to His appointed ends for it. Now, this is most gloriously displayed in the book of Isaiah. In the book of Isaiah, there the prophet is speaking particularly from chapters 40 to the end to a people who are in captivity, a people who had in many ways lost their hope, people who had been tempted and influenced by the pagan idolatry of the nations that surrounded them, and some who were wondering, is God still for us? Is God still on the throne? And so it is to those people that God addresses His word in the book of Isaiah. Speaking in a mocking way to the idols of the nations, He says in Isaiah 41, 23, and let me just read these to you. He says this, Declare the things that are going to come afterward that we may know that you are God's. So he's mocking the idols of the people and he's saying, if in fact you are gods, then tell me what is going to take place before it happens. Of course, they could not do that, showing their vanity and their emptiness. But of himself, he says to his people in Isaiah 44, 6 through 8, listen, I am the first and I am the last and there is no God besides me. Who is like me? Let him proclaim and declare it. Yes, let him recount it to me in order from the time that I established the ancient nation. And let them declare to them the things that are coming and the events that are going to take place. Do not tremble and do not be afraid. Have I not long since announced it to you and declared it? You are my witnesses. Is there any God besides me or is there any rock, other rock, I know of none? He says to them again in Isaiah 48, 5. Therefore, I declared to them to you, them to you long ago. In other words, events that are going to take place. Before they took place, I proclaimed them to you that you would not say, My idol has done them and my graven image and my molten image have commanded them. In other words, so that you might know that I am God, I am your God, I am the God who spoke all things into existence, who spread out the heavens for my glory, a God who has called you into relationship with myself and whose promises will not fail, I declare to you events that will come to pass before they do so that you might know that I am God. And this glorifies him. Let me give you a second purpose. It confirms God's word and his purposes for his people. Approximately 69 times in the book of Ezekiel, 69 times, God declares that he acts so that either his people or the nations might know that he is the Lord, that he is the Lord. He repeats over and over and over that you might know, that they might know, that you might know, that they might know. And then so that they might know, he tells the events that are going to take place before they happen. And he announces them through his prophet. 
Jesus twice told his disciples in John. First in John 13, 19, he said this, From now on, I am telling you before it comes to pass, so that when it does occur, you may believe that I am he. In 14.29 of John, he says this, And now I have told you before it comes to pass that when it comes to pass, you may believe. In other words, you're going to be confused now, but my word will be established and my purpose will be established and your understanding will increase when these events come to pass and you know that I am the one who have declared them to you beforehand. Because of this, then, it also gives confidence to God's people. It gives them encouragement, and it gives them hope, and it motivates them towards a life of faithfulness and obedience as God's people know that they can trust His purposes and His words both for the present and for the future. Now, this reality of God's prophetic word is not more important or more clearly shown than in relation to the coming of the Messiah, Israel's King and Israel's Savior, Jesus Christ. In fact, Jesus fulfilled over 100 specific prophecies during His first coming. Matthew, more than any other gospel writer, has labored throughout from the beginning to where we are and all the way to the end to show us that Jesus is, in fact, everything that Israel should have been anticipating as they waited for her king. Over 129 times, Matthew has in some way, either directly or by type or in some way, associated Jesus with the prophecies of the Old Testament. And he does that more than any other writer, as I mentioned. From the very opening of his gospel, we are confronted with the fact that Jesus is the son of David, just as was promised to David back in 2 Samuel chapter 7. We are struck with the fact that he was born of a virgin, the sign that was anticipated and given to the house of David in Isaiah 7. He is the one who was born in Bethlehem, just as the prophet Micah anticipated back in Micah 5.2, and on and on and on and on it goes. And Matthew is saying, Israel, Jewish nation, listen to me, this is your king, this is your king. He is the one that you should be looking for. Now, every aspect of his life and his ministry then was a fulfillment of God's prophetic word. It was a fulfillment of God's prophetic word. And this is no more clearly seen than in our passage this morning, as Matthew again shows us that Jesus exactly fulfills the prophecies concerning his first coming. In fact, he is then precisely the right kind of king they should have been looking for. Read with me verses, 20, or verses 1 through 11 of chapter 21, and then we'll consider this more closely. When they had approached Jerusalem and had come to Bethpage at the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village opposite you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied there and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. And if anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord has need of them, and immediately he will send them. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, gentle and mounted on a donkey, even a colt, the fowl of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did just as Jesus had instructed them, and brought the donkey and the colt and laid their coats on them, and he sat on the coats. 
Most of the crowd spread their coats in the road, and others were cutting branches from the trees and spreading them in the road. The crowds going ahead of him and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Hosanna in the highest! When he had entered Jerusalem, all the city was stirred, saying, Who is this? And the crowds were saying, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. Go back up to verse 1 and let's notice the prophetic approach of the king. The prophetic approach of the king. It says in verse 1, And when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage to the Mount of Olives. Jesus is now coming to the place of his execution and the accomplishment of his redemption for his people. Jerusalem, Zion, the city of God. He has been preparing his disciples for this time and the events that will soon to come place, particularly in these last few days. Now they are soon to come to pass as he approaches Jerusalem. As was mentioned earlier, this journey to Jerusalem coincides with the time of the Passover, a fact that we will mention again later. It is a journey that Jesus has made many times since he was a little boy growing up in a Jewish household in the house of Joseph and Mary. This, however, would be the last time, and this time he himself would be the sacrifice that was anticipated in the lambs for over a millennia, ever since God delivered his people from the bondage of Egypt to the very point that he is now coming to. Now God had come to deliver them from their greater bondage from sin. And Matthew says simply that when they had approached Jerusalem. Now it's important for us to stop here and note the chronology of the events as they're accounted, recounted for us in the four Gospels. Now after the healing of the two blind men, which Matthew has recorded in verses 29 through 34 of the previous chapter, he and Mark moved directly to his travel to Jerusalem and then Bethpage and Bethany, which are mentioned in Mark and Luke. Now Luke 19, 1, 28, 1 through 28 tells us that after he healed the two blind men, that he entered into Jericho, and while in Jericho he had his encounter with Lazarus that we're all very familiar with and he also told them a parable of Minas about his expectation of his coming and accounting for their faithfulness. He then left Jericho and headed toward Jerusalem. Now Matthew, Mark and Luke are writing thematically and so they move directly to these locations of Bethany on the side of the Mount of Olives. And then the events surrounding Jesus' entry into Jerusalem during the beginning of this Passion Week. However, John 12, verses 2 through 11, inform us that before entering Jerusalem, about six days before the Passover, while Jesus was staying in Bethany, Jesus and his disciples shared a meal with Lazarus and Martha. And now it was during this meal that Mary, the sister of Lazarus, if you'll remember, broke open some very expensive perfume and anointed the head and the feet of Jesus in preparation for his coming burial. She, more than her disciples, understood the events that were soon to take place. Now Matthew and Mark record this same supper, but they place it at the end or nearer to the betrayal on the night of the betrayal of Jesus when he would be handed over to the Jews and eventually to the Romans. 
And the reason for this is that John is recounting the events chronologically while Matthew and Mark, again, are writing thematically. And they want to make the connection clearer that the night of his betrayal and the events of the supper and how they looked forward to the events that were soon to take place. Now, in Matthew 21 through 11, they skip over that for now so that they might give greater attention and focus to the prophetic realities of Jesus as he enters into Jerusalem and is publicly welcomed by his people. Yet we must remember that as all of these events are going on, that supper and the uh, act of being anointed for his coming burial are fresh in the mind of Jesus. And we can only imagine the intense emotions that Jesus would be feeling in his humanity. And it's only as the Son in flesh in perfect submission to the Father that we can imagine that he could bear all of these things that he knew were coming upon him. The praise of the people that he knew was empty, the betrayal of one of his own being scattered and left even by his true disciples, being handed over to his people. All of these are things are coming and he knows it and yet he marches on in perfect obedience to the Father. Now they are outside of Jerusalem and they come then to the Mount of Olives. And he mentions a town here called Bethphage, Bethphage. It's mentioned only here in the synoptics and only in association then with Jesus' entry into Jerusalem. The exact location is unknown, but based on other references, it's very near the town of Bethany as one approaches, approaches Jerusalem from the road, uh, on the Roman road that comes out of Jericho. And it's from here that he moved to Bethany, which is about two miles outside of the city of Jerusalem on the east side of the Mount of Olives. According to Acts 1.12, which refers to this mount as Olivet, it, Bethany then is about a day's or a Sabbath day's journey from Jerusalem. So he's very near to the city. It's likely at this exact moment as he sets out on his journey, the city is not yet in view, but that will happen very shortly. Now, the significance of the Mount of Olives would not have been missed by Matthew's readers or those who know the Old Testament or those who have been following Matthew's argument up to this point. And the prophetic detail and the symbolism of every action of Jesus is absolutely overwhelming. The Mount of Olives, interestingly, is mentioned directly, although it's alluded to in other places, directly it's mentioned only twice in the Old Testament. Only mentioned twice in the Old Testament. Once concerning the future reign of Messiah, and once in reference to David, who was the forerunner of the Messiah. The first is in 2 Samuel 15.30. And there it's recorded as the place from where David flees from Jerusalem as Absalom, his son, has taken over his throne and has absconded the throne of David. And so David is leaving through the night in shame up the ascent of the Mount of Olives. 2 Samuel 15.30 records these words, And David went up the ascent of the Mount of Olives, and he wept as he went, and a hush, and his head was covered, and he walked barefoot. The second mention is in Zechariah 14.4, and it anticipates the day of judgment when Messiah appears. Just listen as I read it to you. In that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which is in front of Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives will be split in its middle from east to west by a dry, uh, by a very dry ravine, so that half of the mountain will be moved toward the north and the other half toward the south. 
In other words, these are the cataclysmic events that are going to happen when Jesus returns in his glory, ready to enter into Jerusalem. Now, the next mention in the canon is actually here in Matthew chapter 21, verse 1. It's the Mount of Olives that Jesus will leave from as he enters into Jerusalem. Later, it will be the Mount of Olives from where Jesus will explain to his disciples all the events that are going to take place at his second coming. It's from the Mount or to the Mount of Olives that Jesus will go on the night of his betrayal where he will pray to the Father that the cup might pass from him, the cup of suffering that is coming on him. And it's from the Mount of Olives that he will ascend actually back to the right hand of the Father. And interestingly, in light of Zechariah 14.4, that's where Jesus says that he will return in the same way and in fact even to the very same location, the Mount of Olives. Now, I want to draw, however, an important contrast here. Drawing your attention back to Zechariah 14.4, the Messiah there is standing on the Mount of Olives in judgment as he comes to establish his kingdom. And yet, Matthew is making a clear connection here that though that time is coming now, he's coming from the Mount of Olives into Jerusalem, not as a conqueror, but as a savior for his people. As Jesus reminded us in John 3.17, he came not first to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. And so here he is from the Mount of Olives making his prophetic approach to the city of Jerusalem. And note secondly then the prophetic preparation. From the Mount of Olives, he has only a short trip to Jerusalem. And so he sends his disciples, two of them, ahead of him, he says, to a village opposite you in verse 2. There you will find a donkey tied there and a colt with her. And he gives them instructions to untie them and bring them to me. Now we're not exactly sure which village he sent them to. It could have been either to Bethany or Bethpage. But in either way, he's sending them ahead to make preparations. And the important factor to note is this, that he's sending them to prepare for his entrance. Jesus is in complete control of these events, and that's what Matthew wants us to see. Jesus is acting in perfect submission to the Father. Jesus is in complete control, which is shown as he goes in the instructions. Immediately, he tells them ahead of time what they're going to find. You'll find a donkey and a colt there, and you're to bring them to me. Again, there is not a detail in the life of Jesus that is outside God's prophetic plan for him. Now, some say here that Jesus is acting out of his omniscience. However, I would suggest that that is not necessary to go there. We must remember when we look at Jesus' life, he's not sometimes acting out of his divine nature and sometimes acting out of his human nature. As the Son, He took on flesh and He fully lived as a man in the power of the Spirit whom He has without measure. And in this sense, though Jesus is able to tell them what happens, He's demonstrating the fullness of the Spirit's prophetic ministry in Him who is the Son in the flesh in perfect submission and union with the Father and the Spirit. Now Matthew here mentions only two animals. Or he mentions two animals, a young male goat and an older female, most likely his mother. Now Matthew is the only one to mention both of these animals. And it shows the precision of the events and the precision of their fulfillment as Zechariah anticipated in Zechariah chapter 9, which we'll look at in just a minute. 
Now, Matthew mentions taking both along because, as Mark eleven two 2 tells us, the colt, the young fowl, had never been ridden. In other words, it was an unbroken animal. And surely the mother was taken along to calm the animal who would have been excited and probably uncontrollable, more so anyway, as he was encountered with the massive crowds that would be confronting him very soon. So anticipating their need then to explain this unusual act, he prepares them. And he says in verse 3, If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord has need of them, and immediately he will send them. Now Matthew simply moves on from there. Mark eleven five through 6 records that some of the bystanders did in fact question him, and the disciples repeated Jesus' instructions and were allowed then to take the animal. Now, Jesus did not need a donkey to go two more miles. He did not need a donkey to go two more miles into Jerusalem. He is preparing preparing his entrance so that the people might know, in fact, that their Messiah is here. Everything he's doing is by intention. Now, Genesis 49, 11, we looked at that briefly last week, tells us that the Messiah will ties his fowl to the vine and his donkeys to the and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. And some here see a possible allusion to that. And that is possible. It's not very likely because it's in Genesis 49, the Messiah is tying, and the picture there is not one of entrance, but of abundance and the blessing of the kingdom. But although he's probably not referring to Genesis 49, he is very clearly preparing for the fulfillment of Zechariah 9, chapter 9. Or verse 9. Look at what he says in verse 4. This took place. In other words, all these events took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Excuse me. And the prophet said this. Say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you, gentle and mounted on a donkey, even a colt, the fowl of a beast of burden. And this is absolutely glorious. Absolutely glorious. And as far as we're going to get this morning. Now this quote, as I've mentioned, is primarily taken from Zechariah 9, chapter 9. And the context is important, so turn back there with me briefly. To Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. Zechariah is, of course, in the minor prophets. And as you'll remember, they are called minor, not because of their lack of importance, but only because of the size of the book. Now, Zechariah is one of the most directly Christocentric or Messianic books in the Old Testament next to Isaiah or along with Isaiah, which is why we will begin next week our scripture reading, reading through the book of Zechariah. It was written between the 5th or the 6th and the 5th centuries BC to a people who had returned to their land after the exile that God had sent them into. And he's writing to both comfort and encourage his people with God's judgment on the nations and the promise of their future and their future king. Now beginning in chapter 9, going through chapter 14, the prophet turns his attention almost exclusively towards those events that are going to take place in the final days. He turns his attention almost exclusively to prepare them for the coming of their king and of their Messiah. And there's an overwhelming amount of material here in Zechariah 9 through 14 that is anticipating this coming king. Now, the first eight verses of Zechariah chapter 9 are an announcement that God will bring judgment on the enemies of the nation 
of the enemies against the nation of Israel. And he begins in verse 2 with Tyre and Sidon. He says, Though they are very wise, for Tyre built herself a fortress and piled up silver like dust and gold like the mire of the streets. Behold, the Lord will dispossess her and cast her wealth into the sea, and she will be consumed with fire. In other words, judgment is coming upon her who boasts in her power, her wealth, and her wisdom. He then marches on down, the prophet does, along the coast of the Mediterranean Sea, showing that God will bring judgment on these nations who harass His people. He will bring judgment on those who would do harm to the people of God. He will humble them and He will bring them low. He says in verse 6, And I will cut off the pride of the Philistines. In verse 7, And I will remove their blood from their mouth and their detestable things from between their teeth. A picture of their wickedness and of their violence. And interestingly, however, note in verse 7, it's not only judgment that God is going to bring on these nations, but he says he's also going to sweep them up in his, into his salvific intentions. He says, then, also will be, they, then they also will be a remnant for our God and be like a clan in Judah and Ekron like a Jebusite. In other words, my judgment is coming to these nations, but my salvation also they will taste of, at least in part. And there he comes to verse 8, and he gives his people the encouragement and the promise that he is their protector. He is the one who is coming for them. He says, I will camp around my house because of an army, because of him who passes by and returns. And no oppressor will pass over them anymore, for now I have seen with my eyes. In other words, I am your God, Israel, and I will be your protector. I am You are king, and I will be the one who establishes peace, and your enemies will no longer be a threat to you. You will no longer need to fear them. Now, history would show us that the instrument of God's judgment initially was Alexander the Great, who came nearly 200 laters after this prophecy, and in his campaign, which began in about 334 B.C., swept down along the coast of the Mediterranean and defeated these nations just as God anticipated. And he defeated that coastal town of Tyre, something that even Nebuchadnezzar was unable to do after 13 years of trying to overcome them. But Alexander would be his instrument of judgment. And so he swept down and he defeated these nations. And yet, Alexander was not the final ruler. God was still yet going to come himself. And the promises here, though realized in part through Alexander, have not yet fully been fulfilled. They've not yet fully been realized. Because the enemies of God still oppress the nation of Israel. And they have throughout the centuries. And God has not yet finally set up a hedge of protection around His people so that their enemies will not harass them. But one is coming who would. One is coming who would finally defeat Israel's enemies. One is coming who would finally be the salvation of God's people. One is coming who would establish His kingdom, as He says in verse 10, and His dominion from sea to see. They're anticipating another. And unlike Alexander, who was proud and ruthless and vain and self-interested, Israel's king would come in triumph, and yet it was a triumph that would be marked by something very different than the pagan rulers who had overtaken them so many times. He would come in meekness, 
and he would come in peace. Look at verse 9. So the prophet says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the fowl of a donkey. This is your king, Israel. And when he comes, it will be a time of joy. It will be a time of celebration. It will be a time of gladness and happiness that will attend the appearance of your Messiah, your Davidic King. And note the language that God uses here. This coming is going to be a consequence of his special love for you. What he says, he calls them, O daughter of Zion, O daughter of Jerusalem. This is an intimate way to speak of their unique relationship to God. And he's saying, your king is coming, Jerusalem. Your king is coming, Israel. And he's coming to you because you are not any nation. You are God's chosen nation. You are not any people. You are his people. You are his children, the children of promise. And so he says, this one king, he's going to come. And he's not any king, but he is your king. And he's coming to you. He's your ruler. He's your savior. He's your God. This is extremely personal language of covenant love and faithfulness. And again, unlike the proud and violent and immoral kings of the Gentiles who oppress you, the character of your king is different. He's going to come and he's going to be just or righteous, that term could be. And he will be endowed with salvation. The idea of justice and righteousness attending the king is to say he's going to come and when he comes, he's going to bear the full weight of the character of God. He will be a righteous king. He will be a just king. He's going to bear the faithfulness of your God and truth and righteousness. That is what will mark your king. And this was what was anticipated by the prophets. He will be endowed with salvation. That is deliverance from Israel's enemies and deliverance from their sin, which he alludes to over in verse 12 of chapter 10. Because when he comes, in that day the Israel will be marked not by rebellion and lethargy, which is partly what Zechariah is addressing, but they will be those who in his name will walk. In other words, they will walk in faithfulness and obedience to their God. He says also that he will be humble and mounted on a donkey. Now this is sometimes taken to mean that Jesus will come in humility and lowliness, the fact that he's mounted on a donkey. Because a donkey, it is argued, is such an ignoble animal and such a young donkey at that. However, this is probably not the picture that is intended here. Donkeys were not considered ignoble animals in ancient times. In fact, kings and high officials and prominent men often rode on donkeys. Abraham rode on a donkey, as did Moses and Balaam and Abigail. And the prophets rode on donkeys. David rode on a donkey when he fleed to Jerusalem. And Solomon, his son, rode on a donkey when he was being presented to the people as king, as did other kings of the ancient Near East. Riding on a donkey was not such a picture of ignobility or weakness or necessarily even of humility, but it was a picture of this. It was a picture of peace. It was a picture of peace. 
Riding on a donkey here is said in contrast to riding on a horse. When Alexander went into a conquered nation, he went in a, on a horse in all of his military regalia. He went in all his fancy uniform and he went in as a conqueror among these people. But this is not the picture of Israel's king when he comes. He's going to come on an animal of peace. On an animal of peace. He's going to come not as a conqueror of his people, but as one extending to them a time of peace. And this is the point of verse 10. He says, look, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim, Ephraim, and the horse from Jerusalem, and the bow of war will be cut off, and he will speak peace to the nations, and his dominion will be from sea to sea, and from the river to the ends of the earth. It's a peace that's going to come not only for Jerusalem, but ultimately it's a peace that's going to come for all of the nations, though specifically through the tribe of Israel. This is the Messiah that you should be looking for. Now turn back to Matthew chapter 21. This is the promise that Matthew points to. And this is the promise that Matthew says is pointing to your Messiah, Israel. This is the promise that's pointing to the one who is before you. And as each of these events unfolds, this is the one whom you should be seeing in those events. But notice something significant here. I didn't notice this. Matthew is connecting these events of Zechariah that are anticipated in Zechariah 9 to the person of Christ After these things took place. After these things took place. As a matter of fact, John chapter 12, verse 16 says this. Just listen as I read. These things, in other words, all of these things that were happening, his disciples did not understand at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things were written of him and that they had done these things to him. In other words, Matthew didn't get it at the time. He didn't fully understand. But Jesus fully understood the prophecy of Zechariah. And the point is this, that he is intentionally fulfilling that word. He knows what Zechariah says, and so he intentionally calls for the the colt, the beast, the burden, the young donkey. He intentionally does these things that he might fulfill the prophetic word. Notice Jesus is the one who is making the preparations here. He is the one making sure that he arrives exactly as the Spirit had anticipated. And in a real sense, it's another plea from Jesus to them to say, Look, look Israel, I'm your Messiah. Look Israel, I am the one that you should be anticipating. I am the one who is coming to bring you peace. I am the one who is the Prince of Peace. I am the one who is your God and your salvation. Look, Israel. Look, Israel. Look. Consider the prophets. The Jesus ascending for the donkey and the cold is a picture then that should have conjured up Zechariah chapter 9 to the people. They should have thought of the words, Behold, your king is coming to you, gentle and mounted on a donkey, even the fowl of a beast of burden. They should have thought of that. It should have been a clear call to them, but they did not get it because they did not have eyes to see and they did not have ears to hear. And in a very real sense, then, this is Jesus giving them another parable. This is Jesus giving them another picture, this time not in words as in the parable, but in actual deed by riding on the donkey. He's telling them, look, look. It's no different, really, than what he said in Matthew chapter 
13, when he says, you'll keep on hearing, but you will not understand. You'll keep on seeing. You'll see your king right in, as Zechariah promised, but you will not perceive. You will not perceive it. The heart of this people has become dull with their ears. They scarcely hear and they have closed their eyes. Otherwise, they would see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and return. If they had eyes to see, if they had ears to hear, that would have been their reaction. And their rejoicing would have been from sincere hearts, not from the empty hearts that will become evident as time goes on. You'll notice also here the first part of Chapter 5, or verse 5, is different than Zechariah. Zechariah said, Rejoice! Rejoice, O daughter of Zion and daughter of Jerusalem. He leaves that part out here and he says, Simply say to the daughter of Zion. Say to the daughter of Zion. And here he's picking up actually on the words of Isaiah chapter 62, which also anticipated the coming of the Prince of Peace which also anticipated the Messiah who was coming, who would announce peace to his people, Israel. As a matter of fact, Isaiah 62, 11 in its whole says this, Behold, the Lord has proclaimed to the end of the earth, Say to the daughter of Zion, Lo, your salvation comes. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. Do you notice what Matthew leaves out of both Isaiah and Zechariah? Do you notice what he leaves out? He leaves out the message of salvation. He leaves out the message of salvation. He mentions his character. He mentions that he is king, but he does not mention that he is the one who will save his people. Why? Because Messiah knows, Christ knows exactly the events that are going to take place. He's going to come offering peace, but they're not going to want it. He's going to come in humility, but they are going to reject him. They're going to reject him. So what is his next announcement then for them? Well, he tells them, not only am I going to leave out the word of salvation, but the next word that he'll have for his people is this, Behold, your house is being left to you desolate. It's going to be left to you desolate, destroyed, overtaken, because you did not understand the time of your visitation. They anticipate peace and it will come, but only after their judgment. Now Jesus is riding into Jerusalem in fulfillment of Zechariah, in a sense calling out to his people saying, Look, I'm offering to you peace. I'm offering to you forgiveness. I'm offering to you salvation. I'm coming to you not as a conqueror, but as a savior. Turn to me. But that's not how he's going to return the second time. It's not how he's going to return the second time. What I said, a horse was was the animal of victory. It was the animal of a conqueror. And that's exactly how Jesus will return the second time. You know it. We read it not too long ago. Revelation 19, And I saw heaven opened, and behold, what? A white horse. And he who sat on it is faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and rages war. And his eyes are a flame of fire, and his his head are many diadems. And he has a name written on him which no one knows but himself. And he is clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is the word of God. And the armies which are in heaven clothed in white linen, white and clean, are following him on 
on white horses, and from his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. And he treads on the winepress of the fierce wrath of God, and on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Your king is coming to you, Israel, in peace. Your king is coming to you mounted on a donkey. Receive your king. Because next time it won't be a donkey, but it will be a horse of destruction. It will be as a conqueror for all those who reject him. Afterwards, he will establish peace. Jesus will establish peace. He will reign over the redeemed in a regenerate land. His people will serve him in righteousness and joy and abundance. But sadly, that's not going to be the case now. It's not going to be the case this time. But here he is. Here he is. Jesus is the Messiah who Matthew announced at the very beginning. He came to save his people from their sins. And he did so in exact fulfillment of the prophets. He came as the very embodiment of God. The very embodiment of righteousness. The righteousness that they claimed they were pursuing. And the righteousness they claimed that they wanted. But when it was before them, they didn't really want it. And this is going to be made dramatically clear as the account goes on. Let me remind you of this, beloved. The rejection of Christ is not a matter of evidence. It's not a matter of evidence. It's not a matter of there not being enough clarity pointing to the person of Christ. It's all over the place. It's a matter of not wanting who He is. It's a matter of not wanting who He is. Every healing that he did was a neon sign that was pointing to him as the Messiah, that was pointing to the fulfillment of the kingdom beginning to take place. Every teaching that he gave was a loud clarion call of the final prophet of God who was announcing the word of God to his people. Every work and deed that he did bore testimony to his holiness and to his perfect righteousness and to his fulfillment of the prophet's. Everything about him that the people had been anticipating for over 1,500 years was right before them. And he's calling out to them. If only they would look, if only they would be willing to see, and only if they would be willing to take him on his terms. And really then there is no excuse for anyone to miss him. There was no excuse for Israel to miss him. There was no excuse for his people to miss him and not see who he was. And beloved, there is no excuse for us to miss him. No one here in this room who sits under the preaching of the word of God will be excused for ignorance. These crowds will not be excused for ignorance, nor will any man who is given testimony of the coming of Christ and yet rejects him. No one can claim ignorance. No one can claim that they did not know. And that's the point. That's the point. At the end of the day, God is impunable. God is without charge. He has done everything that He said He would. The fault is not His own. It is the sinful heart of His people who chose their own wicked ways instead of Him. And that's a warning to us and to any who do not know Him. To any who say, I hear of Jesus, but Jesus is simply not the one my heart longs for. My affections are many other things. This passage stands as a warning to that. This passage stands as a warning to say, don't be foolish. Don't be foolish. Because Jesus will not be treated as trivial. 
And yet for us who know him, it is a great encouragement to know that our God, as was mentioned, reigns. Our God sits on the throne. Our God is accomplishing his purpose. And because his prophetic word came true for everything looking forward to his first coming, his prophetic word will come true to everything looking forward to his second coming. And our king will return. And our king will establish justice. And our king will establish his kingdom. And our king will establish peace among the nations. And that new heavens and new earth coming down, that new heavens and new earth will sin and the curse is gone. That new heavens and that new earth where Jesus as the Lamb and the the Father are on their throne and the river of life is flowing out from before it and the tree of life is on both sides of the river and we are there with him with his name on our forehead. That will come true. It will come true. And as they should have been anticipating the reality of Zechariah but missed it so we are anticipating the realities of Revelation and everything else that tells us of the glory that is coming and we hold on in hope. And I hope that none here will miss it, will miss it as so many of them did. But for the rest of us, we rejoice and we have confidence and rest and assurance that our God is who He is and will fulfill His purpose. Let us pray. Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for Your prophetic Word. We thank You that You have told us what is going to take place before it comes to take place. We thank you that you have announced to us judgment as well as salvation for it warns us and it wakes us out of our spiritual slumber and it reminds us that there is a day coming where our sins will be accounted for. It reminds us that there is a time coming that though the wicked seem to flourish now, they will not flourish forever. But your ways will flourish and your glory will be over all of the earth. We thank you that your prophetic word tells us of this day that is coming when everything that we know here that causes pain, that causes deception, that ruins and destroys and hurts and deceives will be done away with and only what brings you glory and delights in you, only what will make heaven a place of perfect love and holiness, only those things will remain on this world that is coming and we know that it will come and that you will do it. Help us to hold on and walk with you in faithfulness until that great and glorious day. And again, Lord, I pray that for those who don't know you, who don't have that hope in their heart, who don't love you and delight in you and delight in your ways, that you would remove from them the blinders and that they would not have eyes and not see and ears and not hear and hearts that don't feel but that they would love you with all of their heart, soul, strength, and mind, that you, Christ, would be to them their all and all, even as you are to the rest of us. We thank you and we pray these things in the matchless name of the Lord Jesus. Amen.